Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today, April 19th, 2023, marks the 30th anniversary of the siege and fire on the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas. This came after a gun battle with the ATF and a 51-day standoff with the FBI. To mark the occasion, we're doing a special episode of The Stacks. I'll be joined by three different authors who have all released books this year that examine, rethink, and contextualize these events, David Koresh, and the legacy of Waco. First up is Jeff Gwynn, who wrote the book Waco, David Crush, The Branch Davidians, and A Legacy of Rage. Jeff and I talk about what exactly happened in Waco in 1993, the misunderstandings that left so many people dead, and the importance of religion in this story. Then we'll hear from Stephen Talty, author of Crush, The True Story of David Crush and the Tragedy at Waco, who shares a lot more about David Crush, the man and the villain. And finally, Kevin Cook will discuss his book, Waco Rising, David Crush, the FBI, and the Birth of America's Modern Militias. Kevin talks with me a lot about what Waco means to us now and how it's become a rallying cry for the far right in America. Remember, our April book club selection is the poetry collection Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude by Ross Gay. We will be discussing the book with Clint Smith on April 26th. And a quick reminder, everything we talk about on today's episode and every episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. If you love The Stacks and you want more of it, like our incredible community on Discord, our bonus episodes, our monthly meetups to discuss our book club picks and more, join The Stacks Pack on Patreon. It's just $5 a month and you get all of that. Plus, you get to know that you're part of making this Black woman-run independent book podcast a reality every single week. Head to patreon.com slash The Stacks to join now. Quick shout out to our newest members, Sigrid Anderson and Madeline Postman. Thank you both so much. And thank you to everyone in the Stacks Pack. Okay, now it's time for extra special episode to commemorate the 30th anniversary of the events in Waco, Texas with Jeff Gwynn, Stephen Talty, and Kevin Cook. All right, everybody. I am so excited. If you know me, you've heard me talk about this author, Jeff Gwynn. His brand new book is called Waco, David Crush, The Branch Davidians, and A Legacy of Rage. Jeff, welcome to The Stacks. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you. So nice to meet you. I'm I'm just so excited to talk to you. Uh, my listeners know this, but I have like a very sweet spot of interest that involves Waco, 
Jonestown and Charles Manson. So you have been very formative in my personal reading life. I it's like my my holy trinity is those three. So I do want to just sort of start here in about 30 seconds or so. Can you just tell us about the book? What I've tried to do, even though Waco has been a big topic of conversation for 30 years, is not just tell what happened there, but why and how the full context for the first time. So we're marking the 30th anniversary of this event this year, um, which I'm sure you're well aware of. And aside from that anniversary, why do you think it's important to tell this story now? The things that happened 30 years ago are still sort of the starting point for a lot of the things that have happened since. Uh, Waco really initiated not just, say, the bombing in Oklahoma City of the federal building two years later, but the same people who were so pissed off by what happened at Mount Carmel and who believed that all kinds of government conspiracies actually were at the forefront of the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol. There's direct links. We prove them in the book. And if people want to understand what's happening now, understanding what happened in Waco 30 years ago is a great starting point. So let me ask you about that, because one of the things you mentioned towards the end of the book, sort of as you're wrapping up, is about how, you know, how Americans like believe that the government isn't helping them, but maybe oppressing them. And something that I found to be really interesting about that, and I think gets at the complexity of the events in Waco, is that I think that that kind of is true for both sides of the political aisle, right? There are people who feel like they've been left behind. The government isn't helping them with minimum wage or with health care. And then there's this other side that is a little bit more towards this January 6th moment, this militia moment that feels like the government's coming to take away their guns and, well, specifically in this case, take away their guns. Do you think that there's common ground between those groups or should there be or could there be? There can always be common ground if people want to see the other side's perspective. That's all it really takes, trying to understand the other side. Things happened in Waco 30 years ago because there were three separate groups with different agendas. You had ATF, alcohol, tobacco, firearms, the FBI, and the Branch Davidians. Talking today to the people who were involved then, to this day, none of them understand what the other folks were thinking or why they did what they did. This is why we have confrontation. This is why we have violence. And that's why Waco, the lessons that are there, if we want to look, really matter to us today, as you say so aptly. I think, so for me, you know, as I mentioned, I have read a lot of books about Charles Manson. I've read a lot of books about Jim Jones. Those are two stories and events that happened before I was born that I like cannot get enough of. And Waco's happened happened in my lifetime and it's the third one. But with the other two, it feels really clear to me what happened. It feels like there's clear villains, there's clear bad guys, there's clear victims. And with Waco, it feels like that's not true at all. This one feels really hard to parse. So how did you approach writing about it? Where were your allegiances sort of when you started? Did that change as you wrote? Do you feel like you have a better sense of who the victims were and who the bad guys were? Or any like, Can you help make sense of it? That's always the challenge when you try to write narrative nonfiction about a, a controversial topic. This is my 25th book. 
<laughs> a lot of people only know my books about Manson and Jim Jones because they're attracted to the idea of cults. I didn't pick Waco as a subject because I wanted to complete the trifecta. <laughs> I feel like you did. Thank you. <laughs> well, see, here's, here's the thing. Charlie Manson, Jim Jones, and David Koresh can all honestly be identified as demagogues. The demagogue being defined as a person who says there's this great, terrible possibility. I am the only one who can make things right, but only if you follow me and do exactly what I say. Right. The big difference here, and this is, I had to learn this. I didn't know it. When I write books, basically, I'm helped by my ignorance on subjects. Yeah. <laughs> I try not to write a book where I think I already know everything that happened. I want to go in sort of as a Petri dish. Mm-hmm. And, and get everything from every side. And to me, the inevitability of what happened mm-hmm. came from the three groups involved, ATF, FBI, Branch Davidians. No side understood the motives of the other ones. They didn't bother trying to find it. They didn't think they had to. ATF survivors, and some of the ATF died that first day of the raid, tell me today, we didn't care anything about their religion. We knew, you know, just a bunch of religious idiots following mm-hmm. some demagogue, you know, big deal. The only thing we cared about was they had illegal guns. We were going right. in to enforce the law. That's our job. The Branch Davidians felt that everything they were doing, including gathering these illegal weapons and preparing for a battle with anyone who was going to come try to take them away, was what they were told to do in the Bible. So what ATF was doing basically perfectly matched the prophecies David Koresh was claiming he was getting from God. Right. So what's going to happen when these two forces get together? It didn't have to be that way. But nobody ever cared about understanding the other side. And to this day, the survivors still don't. Yeah. I found that part so interesting. I mean, so for me, one of the things that really stuck out is what you're getting at, which is that David Kresh had been telling his followers this story about what was going to happen rooted in biblical text, a very literal interpretation of Babylon, which in his telling equates to the U.S. government. They were going to come. They were going to have a fight. They were going to die. And then they were going to be reborn into the kingdom of heaven. And I didn't know any of that. And I personally am not a religious person at all. And I usually find like anyone who's super religious to be very off-putting for me. But there was something about the way that you wrote about this story and the way that you explained how this all came to be that really had me sitting there being like, yeah, of course there's going to be a huge shootout and firefight if you're a Branch Davidian and you've been told for years that Babylon is coming to get you and then Babylon comes to get you with guns at your front door. And I feel like, that lends itself to why probably many of the survivors still believe because the yep. prophecy was right. Whether or not the prophecy came from God or from his ego or whatever, sort of irrelevant if you believe. And I found that part, that was sort of the linchpin for me on understanding this and sort of m- making it make sense. It, it made it make sense for me. Whether or not I agree with it, it made it make sense. And on the flip side of that, I am predisposed to be very critical and cynical when it comes to law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And I got to tell you, 
they were doing themselves no favors. I mean, were you at all shocked by the ineptitude of the ATF and the FBI and like the ego and the pettiness and and all of that stuff that we saw happen for the 51 days of the of them going there and then the siege and everything? Every book I write, I find some surprising things. Mm-hmm. But this in this book, I found more surprising, almost unbelievable things, yeah. new information than I'd ever found for anything else. And I left feeling as though all these people who are antagonistic towards each other, in one way or another, everyone involved became a victim in some ways. There's no winners here. There's no clear-cut good guys or bad guys. And I sat in a room with one of the Branch Davidian survivors, a grandmother, who believes David Koresh is going to come back as the lamb. And we're still going to have all the end times start any minute now. You know, I kept asking all these people in all different sides, how is this possible? What were you possibly expecting to happen? And this is what I was told from the Branch Davidian perspective. If you believe that God was commanding you personally to do something, wouldn't you do it? Mm. To them, it was that simple. They absolutely have no regret, except, and this got me, that they didn't die during the attack, initial attack or the fire. The ones who did were the lucky ones. They're already with God. Right. And, and you know, I'm sitting there thinking, how can you do this? I'm in your house. You're playing with your granddaughter on your knee. You know, obviously, you're a very intelligent person. People believe what they believe. And then to the ATF agents, not the people in charge, who made unconscionably bad decisions, particularly when they learned without question the Branch Davidians, with their automatic weapons, knew ATF was about to come and still sent them in. But the 76, what they call themselves POAs, plain old agents, all they're told by their bosses Are these people have illegal guns? And oh, by the way, here's some newspaper stories about how their leader is raping 12-year-old girls and they're breaking the law and we're going to go up there and we're going to get them, but they don't know we're coming. They have no access to their guns. We're just going to kind of jump in there, arrest some of them. It'll be easy. One of the pilots of a plane, part of the, the raid, was so convinced by what he heard, hey, it's going to be in and out. He had flown there from Waco to Waco from Houston, a couple hours away. And the raid was going to be at 10 in the morning. He had a golf tea time back in Houston at 1 p.m. because it was going to be that quick and simple. Right. And right. the agents are promised, above all, if we lose the element of surprise, we're not sending you in. Don't worry. And then as they're geared up and getting ready to go in the vehicles, they're told, oh, they do know we're coming. But if we hurry, it'll be okay. And what happens? They're getting out of the two cattle trailers that they came in. And from every window in this huge structure, Mount Carmel, automatic weapons firing at them, cutting them down. Of the 76 ATF agents that went in that day, over 25% of them were either killed or seriously wounded. 
It was a slaughter on both sides. And damn it, it didn't have to happen. And yeah. then the FBI comes in and takes over. We actually have experts in this book who did understand their religion, who went to the FBI during the siege and said, can we explain? The yeah. FBI didn't want to know. And finally, the FBI, when the Branch Davidians aren't coming out, say they're going to put in gradually over two days some CS gas. Two minutes into the final day, they just put in two days worth of gas at once because they say they're being fired upon from inside. They're in tanks, you understand. Yeah, yeah. And there's clouds of combustible gas now. Of course, there's going to be a fire. None of this had to happen. It did not mm -hmm. happen because of some nefarious plot. It was human hubris, right. human ignorance. So not only do we have this tragedy, but the tragedy continues to impact us, as you and I were talking about. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because you said it's not because of a nefarious plot, but I sort of feel like the incompetence part of it makes it so much worse. I wish that the FBI was like, we're going to go in there and burn this place down because then at least I could be like they knew what they were doing and they did what they thought was right. But in this case, it's like you guys didn't really even think it through. Like you knew there were all those kids in there like and you just did a half ass job after 50 days. Like you had so much time to do the right thing or or do something that you thought would minimize, but you were so butthurt about him, you know, saying they were going to come out after Passover, then wanting to write the seven. Like, it just felt so personal. I do want to ask you mm -hmm. a few just like Jeff Gwynn on the record. I'm holding you to it. Questions. Sure. Do you have a feeling of who fired first? Yes, both. The ATF and the Branch Davidians insist the other side fired. Correct. And there is no way of knowing the truth because the FBI knocked down the remainder of Mount Carmel and there would have been bullet holes and exit right. holes. So we'll never know. But let me just say this. You had with the ATF, the 76 agents approaching were all extremely experienced in law enforcement. They had deliberately gotten weaponry that was low caliber so that there wouldn't be bullets flying through thin walls and killing innocent people. Mm -hmm. And their whole raid was set up to not have anybody pull a trigger. Inside Mount Carmel, you had about 90 adults who had been trained at least somewhat in using fully automatic weaponry who'd been guaranteed that these people were coming to kill them right away mm -hmm. and had waited years for their mm -hmm. opportunity to finally do what mm -hmm. God wanted. Now, who is more likely to yes. panic and pull the trigger first? Right. That was my sense was that it was the Branch Davidians fired first. But it's interesting because there's a part in the book where you where there's a line where someone's like, we didn't fire first. Like, we were told not to or whatever. And I'm right. like, I don't even believe that you were told not to. I believe that you were told to for years based on everything I've read about what happened. Like, it's OK if you fired first, because that's what you were taught for the last however many years. Um, I want to ask you about the ending of your book. You sure. end with the little epilogue with from Clive Doyle, mm -hmm. who was a survivor of the siege. 
And I'm just curious why end with him and what what does that say to us as your readers? I hope by the time we get to the epilogue, readers for this book and as all my other books, will see that what I'm trying to do is find facts that haven't been out before, put them into context, and let readers ultimately make up their minds. Mm-hmm. Here you have Clive Doyle who lost his daughter in the fire, who stays in Waco, where everybody's coming to look for him. And over and over, whether he thought somebody agreed with him or not, would talk about how David is the lamb. These things were all prophesized. And so he's staying. He's just turned 80. He's stricken with cancer. He's in Waco, Texas, in a dingy little duplex. It's hot as blazes in a June morning when I come to see him. And he's sitting on his porch, waving away flies. And he sits on his porch because anyone who walks down the street may be David Koresh back as the lamb to start reclaiming the kingdom of God. And Clive starts telling me about how in all these years, occasionally people come up to him on the porch or somewhere else. Say, I'm David. And Clive said, I haven't believed any of them yet, but I have to talk to everyone Hmm. because someday he's coming in my lifetime. And not long after I saw Clive, he died of cancer. What kind of faith would a person have to have, not just to follow Koresh when Koresh is there, Mm -hmm. but having your own daughter burned to death? because Mm -hmm. of David Koresh's prophecies. Mm -hmm. And then for almost 30 years afterward, you're the one who is going to sit there. All the skeptics, all the people who think you're insane, you talk to politely to explain everything. And right up to the day you die, Mm. this is going to be David coming back. Right. And then he did die. And no, Koresh didn't come back. And I thought that's what I wanted to leave people with. Mm-hmm. The sense that whatever else you may say about the Branch Davidians, they were sincere in their yeah. beliefs unto death. Yeah. Is there anything that's not in this book that you wish was? Anything I write, I try to have firsthand, either from people who were participants or from documents from the people who were there. Mm-hmm. All this turned really, this would not, however else it might have played out, the way this transpired would not have happened if the ATF number two on the operation, original raid named Chuck Sarabin, after hearing from an undercover agent that morning, they know we're coming, we got to call it off. Sarabin says, no, we can go ahead, we can still do it. And of course, everything follows. Sarabin testified to Congress later that the undercover agent really hadn't told him, yes, they know we're coming, we've got to call it off that instead he was more vague about it. Mm -hmm. And so if Sarabin had just had the right information, of course I would have called it off. The agent, the undercover guy, testified to Congress and to all his ATF associates, how, you know, he couldn't misunderstand it. I told him exactly what was Mm -hmm. going on. So when I'm trying to write the scene in the book, what I basically have are the conflicting testimonies. Chuck Sarabin, And Robert Rodriguez, the agent, both refused to talk to me. And so what I was going to have to do 
in the book, as much as I hate to do that, is simply say, okay, he said this and he said that. Right. However, it turned out there was a third person in the room with Chuck Sarabin, Mm -hmm. another agent named Phil Lewis, who had never, ever talked. Phil Lewis not only met with me to tell me what he heard on both sides of the conversation, Mm -hmm. but he had transcripts. It kept all these years. And Phil Lewis, a member of ATF, the number three guy in the chain, right, right under Sarabin, said, there is no question Chuck was told. Hmm. They know we're coming. We have to call it off. And Lewis said he even tried to grab Sarabin when Sarabin ran out of the room to get in his car and go tell the other ATF agents we have to go now. And Sarabin broke away from him. So finally, after all these years, there's an objective, firsthand testimony about this. There is no longer any question. Wow. And when that happened, when we had that locked in, then I felt with the survivors that are left, with the documentation we have, we now can follow every step of it. We can say this definitely happened this way. Yeah. Okay. I have two questions for you that are sort of unrelated to the book, but related to you as a writer. How do you write? Where are you? How many hours a day? Do you listen to music? Are there snacks and beverages? Are there rituals? I mean, you're a seriously professional writer. You've written 25 books. So how do you do it? Well, first of all, every time I start a book, I'm petrified. (laughs) Love hearing that. Well, it's true. I, I think most of us who are writers who do narrative nonfiction feel that way. Mm -hmm. We have the germ of an idea, a story we think hasn't been told completely. So we're Mm going to try to tell it again. Are we going to be able to find people who haven't talked before? Are we going to be able to find letters, documents, anything that absolutely would bring our book from speculation to actual corroboration? Mm -hmm. And it scares the crap out of me every time. (laughs) Uh, I'm talking to you today from my writing room upstairs in my my house at Fort Worth, Texas. Any book I start starts in the room here. I'll have five or six ideas. And I always try to pick something, A, I don't know much about, and B, I want to know much more about. Mm -hmm. And then I get in my car. I go everywhere I write about. When I was writing about Jim Jones, I was in the damn overgrown jungle. Oh my Indiana. And if I'm writing about Waco, I not only have to go down the road to Waco, but I have to go to California where the Seventh-day Adventist movement started. Mm-hmm. I've got to find the surviving agents. I try to do my interviews face-to-face. And then once you get back, and every narrative nonfiction writer has to face this moment. Okay, I've got enough research. I've got to start trying to write a draft. And if you write the draft, that's where you see you need to find out more things. And you have to go back out again. It takes me about three to four years to write one of my narrative nonfiction books. Two years to do the research, six months to write the draft, another six months to go back and do more research that I found out I had I needed to do. And then finally, you have to sit down and you have to write the book. And then you have to worry. Did I get something wrong? (laughs) Is there someone I should have discovered, should have talked to that I missed? Mm -hmm. Have I misinterpreted something? 
because no nonfiction book on a complex subject is perfect. Mm-hmm. And then you, and I think very intelligently touched on one of the big problems, people remembering something that happened 30 years ago, something mm-hmm. traumatic. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's parts of it they wish had gone a certain way. Mm-hmm. And way back then they start telling people that this happened. After 30 years, you could put them in a lie detector and because they've come to believe it is absolutely true. That's why you can't talk to one or two people right. and say, I've done my research. Here's the book. You know, I will talk to 150, 200 people anyway in the course of every book. I may only put remarks from 50 of them in the mm-hmm. book. But you've got once somebody tells you something, you want to find other people who right. saw it happen. So it's tough and I'm never satisfied. Okay, but let me ask you, this part's really important and you didn't mention it and I know you're going to laugh, but on all those drives and all the time you spend reading and writing, what are you snacking on, Jeff? What beverages are you drinking? People think that when uh, somebody who's writing nonfiction is traveling around the country, the publisher's paying for the gas and the hotel and the food and everything else. That's not the way it works. We pay our own way. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, I believe I am expert in more sort of crummy, barely habitable <laughs> motels in America than any other human being. And I, what I always do before I leave home is I buy granola bars and fruit. Okay, you're a healthy person. No, they're cheap. <laughs> <laughs> and in the mornings, if I'm at a motel, it doesn't serve a free breakfast. Yeah. Granola bars and fruit. At night, I always have granola bars and fruit. And in between, at lunchtime, I try to buy myself a whole meal. I'm partial to Mexican or barbecue if I can find it. but A a true Texan. Or roadkill if there's nothing else. (laughs) And I live on two beverages. Coke, zero sugar. Mm. And ice water. Yes, I love this. Okay, what's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? Many of them. I, I am a terrible speller. I hate modern conveniences a lot. But spell check on, on word perfect, which is yeah. not just called word. You know, all I can do is say, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> it saves me a lot. I have problems with words like flamboyant. Sure. Where in the hell do you put the U? I didn't know there was a you. I was just spelling it in my head. I, I, I'm a terrible speller. So, well, I, yeah. The best people are terrible spellers. It's just a genetic fact. I appreciate fact. that. Yeah, I, I firmly agree. Um, okay, so for people who have read and loved Waco or really want to read it and are excited about it, what are some other books you might recommend to them that are in a similar, you know, maybe not the same topic, but just like books that are in conversation with your work? Um, not your books, other people's books. Uh, for this book, there was one in particular, if, you, if you're interested in Waco, if you read my book and go, hey, this is great, I want to know more, there is a book called The Allure of Immortality oh. by Lynn Milner. David Koresh was not the first Koresh to claim himself to be, have this name and be the lamb and the prophet of Revelation everything else. He took everything he prophesied from an earlier Koresh, a guy named Cyrus Teed down in Fort Myers, Florida. And Lynn Milner wrote a brilliant book about Cyrus T. And in reading that book, 
I learned so much about how someone can try to adopt a certain personality to draw mm. people to him. I learned more from that book, I think, than I've learned from 20 years of my own research. She was just a great yeah. writer, and she knew how to explain things. Mm. And as we say in Texas, I went to school on that book. <laughs> I think my book is better for having read her and learned some better ways to explain things about people who believe certain religious things that most of us would think were absolutely nuts. Wow. Okay, I only have two more questions for you. One is, what do you think the legacy of Waco and the Branch Davidians and the siege and everything is? And does it really matter now and should it? The legacy of Waco is simply giving more ammunition to those who are paranoid about government, those who are conspiracy theorists. And Waco remains important because it's really directly responsible for a lot of tragedies since and a lot of the atmosphere today. Waco happened because nobody cared enough to take that extra step to try to understand the other guy. Look where we are today. There are lessons we can learn. It'll be worth it. I just hope this book of mine helps, and I hope that whatever next book I decide to write can make a contribution too. Yeah. All right. I hope so too. If you could have one person, dead or alive, read this book, who would you want it to be? John Steinbeck. When I was a kid, somebody gave me a copy of Travels with Charlie by John mm -hmm. Steinbeck. And of course, that's Steinbeck talking about getting in a truck with his dog and going all over America. And I thought to myself, 10 years old, wait a minute. You mean he gets all these adventures and somebody pays him to write about it? I want a piece of that. And I would love to be able to give this book to John Steinbeck and say, I know it's not anywhere close to the quality of your work, but I want you to know that because of you, this book was really written. Wow. Oh, I love that so much. Jeff Glenn, thank you so much for being here. Everyone, again, the book is called Waco, David Crush, The Branch Davidians, and A Legacy of Rage. Um, you can get it. It's out in the world now. And um, thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you, Tracy. You bring books to the attention of readers. It's a wonderful thing you're doing. Thank you so much for it. Thank you. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. 
Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1. And that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank member FDIC. All right, everyone. I'm so excited. I am joined today by Stephen Talty, who's the author of Koresh, the true story of David Koresh and the tragedy at Waco. Stephen, welcome to the Stacks. Thanks for having me. Will you just tell folks in about 30 seconds or so about your book, Koresh? Sure. My book really focuses on David Koresh, the four Waco, the childhood, his school years, highlighting how he became who he became. Mm -hmm. So um, it's almost evenly divided. The first half is biographical, his childhood in in small town Texas, his really kind of disastrous relationships with uh, older men, his stepfather, grandfather, and then the journey to Waco, how he got involved with Branch Davidians. Um, And once we're in Waco, of course, we deal with the ATF and FBI. But I think what sets my book apart a little bit is this really intense focus on David Koresh and, you know, how he got to be this kind of very dark and important figure. Yeah. I mean, I I definitely agree. Your book, I mean, just from the title alone, the other two books are Waco related and yours is Koresh. So we know that that's what we're getting into. I'm really curious, because you've written about so many people, but aside from the anniversary, the 30th anniversary, why is it important or why was it important for you to tell this story now to to rehash this man and his life? You know, I think like a lot of Americans, I, I watched the original Siege on CNN. And at the end of it, I kind of just stared at the screen, kind of like at the Sopranos finale. And I'm like, what just happened? What did I just watch? You know? Right, right. The fact that, you know, CNN and all the other cameras had to be like a couple miles back. So you never saw the faces of the Davidians in the windows. You never saw the kids. You never sort of humanized the people inside. So I'm like, a lot of people immediately focused on the government role. And that's very important. Um, A lot of disastrous decisions there. But I'm like, I have no idea who these people were and it kind of bothered me. So when I saw the um, anniversary approaching, you know, I really didn't feel that there was a definitive book on David Koresh, the way that we have ones on Manson or Jim Jones. And I kind of felt like there was a hole in the culture, if you will, that David Koresh was this 
kind of iconic figure for many people, especially on the right. But I don't think many people could tell you, you know, what formed him, what caused him to go this way. And so I set out to explore that. This is a big question I have for you, because so much of David Koresh's narrative and story, especially towards the end, comes from, you know, recordings of his preaching and the ways that he retells his own story. And we know that he is, you know, considers himself a prophet of God. We know that he has these, you know, I would say delusions of grandeur. We know that he reshapes his own narrative to fit whatever he's trying to get done, you know? So I'm wondering when you're sourcing something like this and you're doing research and you're talking to people who are in those rooms, hearing Mm -hmm. him talk, but knowing that he's not a reliable narrator, (laughs) how are you hashing out what is like, yes, I believe this. And what is, I don't know, man, this feels like a stretch. There's a lot of that with David Koresh, believe me. The good thing about the Branch Davidians is, I mean, I think it's fair to call it a cult. Um, very insular, personality-driven. So, And, of course, almost all the members of the Branch Davidians died in that fire. So right. David was kind of the authority on David. But there were um, dissidents who left the Branch Davidians and people who got kicked out. And when I was sourcing it and listening to these people, I think when you're sourcing something like that and the person is fanatically um, obsessively angry with the subject with David Koresh or whatever, and only really tells very uh, skewed, heightened anecdotes about what happened there, all against David. But I, that's not what I found. A lot of the people, mm. I'll tell you one thing that a, a high school friend of his told me. David, of course, was born Vernon Wayne Howell in Texas, changed his name later. Um, I spoke to a high school friend and he said, um, if I saw Vernon Howell walking down the street, Today, I would cross over and shake his hand. Hmm. If I saw David Koresh walking down the street, I would keep going. Hmm. You know, he wasn't a completely dark figure. And people that I spoke to gave credit, especially to his early self, when he was really trying to be a Christian, really trying to be selfless and give of himself the way that the, the Bible instructs. So the way I trusted their versions was that they were not trying to, you know, vilify David. They were really trying to see how they had gotten into this situation and how he had gotten into it. So a lot of it was their testimony. Was it, you know, was it sort of uh, an expose? Was it a teardown job? Were they really just trying to hurt him? Or were they really exploring their own experiences and being truthful about it? There's one figure that comes up in your book, Mark Bro, who comes up in everybody's book and who comes up in the story a lot because he's sort of the the rival some might say, I think that's how you characterize him. I think that's like his title, chapter, one of his chapter titles. And he supplies information to the FBI and the ATF that maybe were or weren't true. And how does he play into you as a reliable source? Because not that I'm a fan of David Koresh, but I also have my doubts about Mark. And so I'm wondering mm-hmm. how you parsed that. Well, I had several people who were in those rooms, a guy named David Buns, who knew Mark Bro well, Um, other people who sort of either wrote about it or spoke to me. I found Mark credible. Um, I read through a lot of his, um, you know, he does a lot of blog posts. And again, I feel that he didn't let himself off easily. He felt responsible for, he brought people into the Branch Davidians and and they eventually died. So like, there's one example that he had a, a debate in Australia with David once he had broken off 
um, that relationship. And, you know, there were other people in the room. I spoke to some of them and, you know, they verified his account. And and we have, often we have David's account, as you said, through his preaching. So I, I just found that Mark was more credible, certainly than David's recollection of, of his own history and, and of that meeting in particular. Okay. I like that. I'm, I'm happy to hear it. Because I, you know, you, it's like you don't really know who anybody is, especially in stories like this. You kind of feel like everyone, like you feel uneasy almost as a reader because it's like, I don't know who to trust. Like you were there. And, you, you know, so it, it's good to hear that you feel like, you know, that he was a very credible source. I want to talk about one of the things that your book really gets into that other books don't. And that is David Koresh's abuse of young women and girls and his marriage to them and having having raped many of the young Branch Davidian women and groomed them. And you really get into that in this book. Um, I feel like it's very, I mean, not not detailed in the sense that it's like graphic, but detailed. You explain what happened and how it happened. And I want to know why that was important for you in telling this story. To me, it was important because it was a deep pattern in his life and he was himself sexually abused or he claimed to be. Um, and I found that pretty convincing. I mean, he told other people about that. And for me, this paradox of someone who not only um, was abused sexually as a child, but had some perspective on it. He would talk to others in the Davidians who experienced, um, you know, unwanted sexual touching and things like that. And it was very empathetic. So the fact that he you know, was kind of um, evolved on this issue, but then went ahead and pursued it so vigorously and really didn't want to give up. I mean, that's, I think, one of the reasons he didn't come out. He didn't want to give up that collection of adoring women that he had. So um, to me, it shows that David, especially early on, was a wounded person, a person who had somewhat of a disastrous childhood as far as relationships go. And then he turns around and does these things to young women in his care. So that, to me, those dimensions of his uh, behavior kind of fascinating. This is something that has never made sense to me. And I don't know if you can make it make sense. I feel like mm-hmm. after all the reading I've done, it should make sense. But I just, I can't wrap my brain around it. Why did David Koresh want to be the leader of the Branch Davidians? Why was it was it money? Was it the wives? Was it the potential to actually fulfill this prophecy? Like when I think of Jim Jones, it feels very clear to me what happened there and why that happened. And this one still just feels like, I don't, I don't know. I don't get it. Like, like I just, I don't, why David, why David right. Crash? <laughs> you know, I've had that sort of question from other people that I interviewed who knew David and basically what people say is, you know, I went through a very similar childhood as David did. He didn't, you know, he, he got whipped, et cetera, but that was sort of standard in in the 1970s. It's like, I didn't become a cult leader. What happened? Why did he want this so much? I just think that his childhood created a hole inside him that was just so profound. And you're also talking about a person who really from his early childhood was not only a narcissist, but as you said, um, dreams of grandeur, he had a grandiosity about himself. So things that other people did to, um, you know, sort of get over their childhoods, therapy, drugs. He tried drugs once. uh, He tried, I believe it was Xanax. And he just hated how it sort of robbed him of his voice. He was very quiet under that drug. He wanted to be exalted. He wanted to be glorified. So I think when he 
saw the Davinians. It was everything he wanted. He wanted to be a rock and roll star. He wanted to have groupies. Well, he was going to get groupies here. So yeah. I think it was the power. It was the sex. The money was less important. But I just think it was this feeling that he had that um, the compound at Waco and, and the Branch Davidians, he was kind of, in a way, reassembling the family that he never had. Mm. And what's curious about that to me is that I think deep in his mind, he knew that it was going to end up uh, with people dying. So, you know, that's a very conflicted view of your own family. But I think it all goes back to what he experienced as a child, what he felt had been taken away from him. Mm-hmm. And he was damn sure going to get it back. That's I mean, as far as terms of pride and respect and, you know, exaltation, he wanted all of it. Why do you think he thought it was going to end in death? Well, he gave really signs in the 80s. He would he would tell his um, his aunt, Sharon, um, you know, the government is going to come after me. And this is way before any kind of ATF investigation. Right. You know, the curious, the curious thing is that he would say, yeah, the the feds are going to come and kill me. And um, it's because I have, you know, multiple wives, but, you know, polygamy is not a, (laughs) it's not a capital offense in America. You're not going to go to the electric chair. I just felt that he knew he was going to, he was going to push the extremes to such a way in such a way that um, he was going to attract the attention of the government. And I felt, I feel that he knew that he was not going to back down. He was not going to go back to jail. Interesting. Do you, do you think that in some ways, maybe he was courting this? Like, do you think that he was laying stones, was trying to get in trouble so that this could happen? Or do you think this was sort of like the luckiest fucking oopsie daisy ever? I don't know. So what do you think? I think he was actively courting his own destruction. Um, You have to remember that the Branch Davidians had prophet leaders before. He wasn't the first one. And what had happened, and he saw some of this, is that, you know, they were stuck in this dusty compound in Waco, and nothing happened week after week, month after month. And the vitality, the joy, the juice of that whole experience of we're going to meet God just drained away because nothing happened. So one thing that set David apart was that he said, it's going to happen soon in my lifetime, in your lifetime, and you're going to see the face of God. And it was immensely attractive to his followers who'd been waiting, waiting for the message, you know, so he did not want to be this person hanging on and losing followers. And I think one thing you have to remember is that David wasn't the only fanatic in that compound. He had people, his lieutenants who were just as obsessed, um, perhaps even more obsessed than he was and were pushing him to have some kind of resolution. They would say, David, when is this going to happen? So this, any kind of challenge to his authenticity, I think, drove David crazy. He he could not be doubted. He couldn't be wrong. That's something that a lot of his followers told me again and again, is that he would actually change the meaning of words rather than admit that he was wrong. Hmm. So if he said he was going to bring, you know, the apocalypse, he had to bring it. Hmm. Okay. So now to his followers a little bit, mm-hmm. why did they stay? Was he blocking the exits? Or did they really believe like, and then to the end of that question and sort of the end of the event, was this, in your opinion, a mass suicide or was this sort of a spiraling of events that went wrong? You know, that's a tough one because I think there was a real range of um, thoughts and emotions inside the compound. I think some people did doubt that he was really the Messiah at some points, but 
the psychological pressure just to remain was tremendous. And also, you know, these were a self-selected group of people who literally would give up anything for a shot at being close to the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Even if that shot was 15% or 20% that David might be the real deal, that was enough for them. Um, it might not be enough for me or you, but these people really felt this almost cellular need to be with Jesus in the end times. So if David was even halfway convincing, and you have to remember that sort of the events and the actions of the ATF and the FBI really reinforced the biblical prophecies that he was giving. Mm-hmm. He was 33 at the time, like Jesus. He was shot in the side and he had an injury to his hand like Jesus. And he would sort of show them what was happening outside and give them the biblical interpretation. You know, the the tanks out there are really chariots, as it says in the Bible. So when you're in this worldview and everyone around you has the same worldview, and you're one of a select group of people who are going to, you know, lead to the rebirth of the world, those are very sort of heavy incentives to remain where you are. So if you're already in that mindset, it's really difficult to get out of, especially when there are people pointing guns at you from outside. Right. Going into writing this book, what were you thinking and what, if anything, changed for you about who David Crush was? What happened from February to April? Did you have an idea in your mind what you thought you were going to write about? And did, through your research, did any of that change in any meaningful way? Um, I think there were two things that kind of shocked me in my research. The first, I've already mentioned that You know, David was a pretty good guy starting out. I mean, I had testimonies saying that he would, you know, try to help recovering addicts get back on their feet. He really cared about people. That was a surprise to me because perhaps from the media, I just think of him as a very dark figure. And the other part when we get to the siege is just how badly the government messed up. I didn't believe going in that, you know, the FBI was taking target practice from outside and picking Branch Davidians off. And the interesting thing about that to me is these conspiracy theories about the government, you know, intentionally killing the Davidians, which to me are not true. My research does not prove that sort of gives cover to what the government really did badly, which was they got people killed just through laziness, stupidity and bad planning. I mean, these guys thought. Listen, and and they have good reason. They conduct thousands of these raids before, and they just never had this idea that people were going to shoot back at them. So, yeah, that did surprise me just how really awful the the mission was. And one thing that really I have to say, I spoke to a lot of ATF agents, and they just hate this idea. They hate these two words, botched raid. Mm. Because they're like, we didn't botch any damn thing. We went in there. We were outmanned. We were outgunned. And we got the shit shot out of us. So Mm. it wasn't our fault. And I, I, you know, after talking to a lot of people, I agree. Well, it wasn't like the ATF agent's fault, like the the men on the ground. But it was there's fault for what happened to the poor planning and the decisions that were made around whether or not they should even have gone in that day at that time. Right. Like that. To me, that's what the botch is. The botch isn't that there were 70 or whatever men on the ground, men and women on the ground who were injured and who were shot at and who were, you know, had the worst day of their life. But the botch raid idea for me is like those guys at the top who are planning who when when uh, Rodriguez or Gonzalez, Mm -hmm. I remember one was his real name and one was his fake name. (laughs) 
Yes, Rodriguez um, is really Rodriguez when he was like, they know, and they were like, yeah, no, let's just go faster right now. Like that is the botch to me. That is absolutely correct. Um, it was middle management and the higher ups who completely fucked up this raid and then tried to blame it on the media and also tried to cover it up. So that is the only part of the conspiracy that is true. The ATF definitely told his agents to shut up, saying the reporters tipped off the French civilians. Not true. They did unintentionally uh, sort of alert the Branch Davidians to the fact that the raid was coming just because the reporters were out there and one of them right. actually met Branch Davidian. But that to me is what makes me angry about the conspiracy theorists. I'm like, you're actually providing cover for the government because right. not a lot right. of people believe these insane theories, but if you told them the truth, the truth is actually just as shocking as right. these outlandish theories because it happens every day and it could happen tomorrow. Yeah. Who do you think fired the first shot on February 28th? Oh, my God. Um, I know it's so an impossible hard. question, but I'm just it's so I, I have such a I in my mind, I'm like, I know who did it. Um, but I love asking you men who have written <laughs> these books. I'm just curious what you think. <laughs> OK, I'm going to weasel out a little bit. but I'm going to give you my top two theories. The first okay. one is that it was either a misfire by the ATF or they were shooting the dogs that were in a pen in front of the um, in front of the compound building and that set off the all the gunfire either it was that or it was the Davidians um, <laughs> well so, those are the two <laughs> options Stephen <laughs> well no I mean the ATF I don't think oh you don't think because, the ATF was like shooting at no, them because yeah tactically it's, it's stupid yeah you don't even have your target in sight and you can start shooting at a building that's that goes against their training so I don't think that happened so, I mean, if you put a gun to my head, so to speak, um, I would say it's probably the Davidians because they were, they've been primed for this for so long. And this was, this was the fulfillment of the prophecy. This was just not, it wasn't just a, a raid by the ATF. This was, right. you know, this was the, the word of the Bible. So it was going to be a gun battle regardless. Yes, I agree with that. Um, in your outro, or maybe it was in the acknowledgments, I can't remember. I think the acknowledgments, you mentioned Executioner Song as being an inspiration for this. Mm -hmm. And that's a book that I've actually read the entire thing, which I'm shocked myself no about. Uh, I did it. I want to know how that book informed this one for you, what you were thinking about with Executioner Song as you were writing Crash. I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, Executioner Song is one of my favorite books. And what enthralled me about that book and still does is that Norman Mailer was giving this assignment to cover the execution of Gary Gilmore, who had murdered people in Utah. And instead of doing what almost every author does, which is have kind of this 30,000 foot view down on the events where you're kind of omniscient and you are kind of guiding the reader and telling them what's happening and perhaps a little bit what to think about what's happening. Mailer threw all that away and let the characters sort of direct the action. So he had sort of an over-the-shoulder camera, to, to put it in cinematic terms, and there's sort of no judgment. You're, you're just seeing their lives as they really experience them. To me, he really brings out the humanity of the characters as they saw themselves, not as he saw them, um, which is very hard to do. Mm -hmm. I just felt it was kind of a same situation. David Koresh grew up in, you know, not remarkably different terms than what Gary Gilmore went through. Um, and I just wanted to answer the questions about motive, you know, what brought them to Waco? 
And the only way for me to do that was to sort of use their own words, their own sort of region dialect to talk about, you know, who they were and where they were going. So I kind of wanted to give the book over to the characters instead of, you know, being the center of it. Right. You know, I, I can't touch Norman Mailer. He was an absolute genius, but I'm, I'm glad for that inspiration because it gave me a way to, to approach this book that I thought was really different from the, the other books I've written. Nobody asked me, but I like this better than Executioner Song. Shut up. I did. I, I didn't love Executioner Song. I got to be honest. Oh, wow. It was a little, a little long for me. No offense. Okay. A thousand page book. I get it. But I, I, I wasn't as captured by it as I thought that I was supposed to be. And I was very captured by this book. And wow. yours was the third one that I read. So I like it wasn't uh, like I, you know, I, I was worried. I was like, I'm going to hate this because I've already done this. But right. I was very taken by it. I read it very quickly. And I, I thought you did a great. I do think you did that. Like you made me feel like I was on the ground with these people, which is not a super fun it's not a place I would want to be. I don't think I would have been a Branch Davidian. Um, I want to know about how you write. How often do you listen to music or not? Where are you? Are there snacks and beverages? Are there rituals? It's funny you ask that. Um, You're going to be shocked. I write in a recliner with a lap desk and um, my research next to me um, on both sides. I don't know. I, I don't like, it doesn't matter to me if, you know, you see these pictures of writer cabins out in the woods and I'm like how do you get anything done it's so beautiful why would you want to look at a computer so I have to sort of trap myself in a place that I don't want to spend too much time in and give myself over to the story so um yeah I sit in a a recliner no real snacks no music definitely not one weird thing is I I find it really hard to write with somebody else in the house Mm. I just feel like if I hear a noise it brings me back to the place I'm sitting instead of the place I'm writing about. Hmm. So yeah, I kind of wait for everyone to read, to leave the house. I try to do 1500 or 2000 words a day, even if they're terrible, you know, get the garbage on the page and and then you'll turn it into something else. But yeah, so I spend probably three to four hours a day doing that. And if I hit that mark, I'm happy. What's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try. You know what? Um, I wrote a book called The Captain's Duty with Captain Rich Phillips. And um, I can never remember how to spell his last name. Is it one L or two L's? <laughs> and I get it wrong all the time. I mean, I, I just, I really do have a problem with proper names and the spelling. Mm. I don't know. It throws me. I'm a terrible speller. And I, Phillips is a hard word, like a Phillips head screwdriver or whatever. Who knows? Oh, my God. Um, is there anything that's not in this book that you wish was or could be? One of the things I did for the book, I, I'm sure the other authors did it, is read through all the transcripts of the negotiations. And there's just so much in there. It's, I mean, David is goofy. He's really charming at times. Um, at other times, he's absolutely frightening. Somebody should publish the transcripts just so people can get a, a flavor of just how weird he actually was. Weird, <laughs> but relatable, you know? Right. Um, I mean, there were times... I found myself sitting alone in the house laughing at something David had said, you know, 30 years ago. And I'm like, you always have this feeling, you know, it didn't have to go this way. He he was just this charming, good old boy at certain points, but then he could turn on a dime and, and just be almost demonic. So yeah, the, the thing I, I would have loved to have gotten more of that flavor of his actual dialogue in the book, but it was already over 400 pages. So um, that wasn't going to happen. 
Yeah. For people who love Koresh, what's another book or what's a few other books you might recommend to them that are in conversation with this? It doesn't have to be specifically about Waco, but just books that are similar that people might enjoy. Um, There's a new book called Trust the Plan about QAnon that mm. you know a lot of people talk about the connection between David and the far right, and it's definitely there. I've been fascinated by QAnon. And it's when you listen to um, people who believe in it, if you close your eyes, you could be listening to a Branch Davidian just talking yeah. about different things. It's just this ability not only to have conspiracy theories, but, but to kind of live inside of them. You know, I, I grew up, I've heard conspiracy theories all my life, but this ability to sort of inhabit them in a way mm. that everything that comes into your mind is just filtered by this by this idea or this belief in David Koresh or this belief in Donald Trump or whomever, the similarities were really eerie when I listened to, to people from both camps. Yeah. I, this kind of leads me into my second to last question for you, which is what do you think the legacy of Waco is 30 years out? For me, it was this idea of hidden things coming out into the open. Hmm. So people on the far right talk about David Koresh. I don't think they really have a notion of who he really was. He'd be terribly disappointed to find out that he's a figure for a lot of American people, but not a religious figure. I yeah. mean, you know, yeah. he's, you know, he's more of a, a renegade, a rebel, someone who stood up to the feds, which is part of his legacy, but not the most important part to him. So yeah. it's just one of these things where, where this hidden reality sort of bursts into life and, um, and people never forget it. Yeah. If you could have one person dead or alive read this book, who would you want it to be? You know, maybe Ron DeSantis, because mm. I think he's he's sort of carrying the banner for people who see David Koresh in this light. Um, mm -hmm. And he's doing it in a, very, in a way that is, you know, mainstream and he might someday be president. So <sighs> just this idea of creating realities out of thin air. Um, is part of the American tradition. It goes back hundreds of years. I mean, that's why we have all these religious movements. We really see America as this place where a new world can be born. And something that's something certainly that David Koresh believed and a lot of Ron DeSantis's followers believe. So I would hope that DeSantis and his, you know, believers would look at this and say, what's real and what's not? Because the government, again, the government oversteps. You know, there are, there are, kernels of truth to what you're saying, obviously. But um, the danger is is sort of taking all of these little parts of the story and putting it into a hole that is unquestionable and cannot be challenged. And I think that's very dangerous. So, you know, I tried to tell both sides of the story. I, I tried to tell it in a way that, you know, a Branch Davidian reading it would be like, okay, I, I see myself represented here fairly and mm -hmm. in, in the same way that an ETF agent might. So, Hopefully there's a way forward for both sides that does not involve, you know, civil war. Yes. Hopefully. <laughs> what a note to end on. Steven, thank you so much for being here. Everyone, you can get Crush now wherever you get your books. It is in the world. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, 
blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. All right, everyone. I am joined today by author of a brand new book called Waco Rising, David Crush, the FBI, and the Birth of America's Modern Militias. Kevin Cook, welcome to The Stacks. Hi, Tracy. It's good to be with you. I'm so excited to talk to you. Uh, I, I really enjoyed your book. Um, I have a passion for Waco-related things, so this is a big year for someone like me I'll who say. likes to read it all. Um, but in about 30 seconds or so, can you just tell us about Waco Rising? Waco Rising is about, uh, naturally, the uh, standoff between the Branch Davidians, led by David Koresh, and the forces of the U.S. government, which they called Babylon in 1993 at uh, the Mount Carmel. They called their uh, retreat about 10 miles from uh, Waco proper. Uh, I think it's one of the most misunderstood events of uh, recent American history. I fully agree with that sentence, which we will get into. I would love, you know, obviously this anniversary is a great impetus to write a book, but aside from the anniversary itself, why is it important to tell this story now? I think it's terrifically important because we're getting into a place in in our national discourse in which we are talking at cross purposes so often. Um, this is an event that's understood differently. It's a it's a flag that's flown by different groups for different meanings. And it struck me as uh, I had written a book about the Challenger space shuttle explosion in 1986. And I remembered that so vividly as a fiery moment on television. It was covered wall to wall by CNN, which was still relatively new. And I felt that I was one of millions of people who remembered it vividly, but not the details, not the remarkable mm-hmm. story behind what actually happened. And I think that Waco is similar in that way. Millions remember it. Very few have been able to find the story behind the story, who they were, who the Davidians were, why it happened the way it did, and why it has been interpreted and misinterpreted ever since. 
So you mentioned sort of the the flags that people fly around with, around Waco. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that your book does that was really exciting to me is it talks about the after effects of what happened in Waco. I think, you know, obviously what actually happened starting in February 1993 all the way through to April 19th, 1993, there's a lot that has been written about and talked about. And I think in the 30 years since, you know, people have used Waco as most famously, I would say, Timothy McVeigh used mm-hmm. Waco as impetus for his bombing in Oklahoma City, but also, you know, militia groups and all these things. And you talk a lot about that in the book. And my big question around that is why is Waco the thing? Why wasn't it Ruby Ridge that happened a few years before that was similar in a lot of ways? Like, why was Waco the one that? you know, we can even draw lines from, Mm -hmm. you know, January 6th. Why that day? Why, why that event? I I think Waco uh, is important both because it followed Ruby Ridge fairly quickly and because it was bigger and, and took much more time. Ruby Ridge unspooled fairly quickly and it was a, it was a smaller event. It was another botched effort by the ATF to, um, surround people that the ATF was after for somewhat legitimate reasons. Uh, I think it was an overreach on the part of that uh, bureau. The ATF was then looking for a win at Waco and went in with the awful muscle that was unnecessary. And and that had, had they understood their opponents, they would have known that their tactics were exactly what would have set Koresh and the Branch Davidians on an even more extreme path. The fact that it was on television for 51 days with increasing pressure on, on the FBI, which took over after the ATF actually messed things up on uh, yeah. on uh, February the 28th. I do want to emphasize that, that I have great sympathy for some of the ATF agents who risked their lives. They were yes. doing their jobs that day. I think they were misled. I think they believed that too. But I think to, to go directly to your question, the reason it was became so big is because it seemed to prove what a lot of people like Koresh believed that the government is out to take your weapons and will kill you if necessary if you do not submit. People even today point to Waco as proof of that in the same way that Koresh's followers saw being surrounded by government forces coming in eventually to fire tear gas at them as proof that what he had told them was coming actually was coming. So to use what happened at Waco to support one's own philosophy, I think that's why it fits so, so well, even 30 years later. What do you make of David Crash? I mean, I feel like when going into, you know, reading about all of this this year, I sort of was like, he's a he's a wackadoodle. He's a, a monster. He's an egomaniac. And I think that maybe my understanding was void of a lot of the religious elements mm-hmm. of the story. I think a lot of people probably don't understand a lot of the religious stuff. And I still don't think that I fully understand it. It feels right. very, compli- very complicated yes. Bible stuff. Yeah. Um, but it did sort of change my opinion of David Crush and and even more so of the Branch Davidians. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, you know, if you had what you make of him. You use the term monster, and I think that's appropriate. <laughs> okay. I think that he was a monster. And terminology is important here, too. I, I take care not to use the word cult. 
Uh, I like, I think, sect works. I think an offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventist. But as the great Tom Wolfe once said, what's the definition of a cult? A cult is a religion with no political power. I, mm. I think to understand Koresh, he's often described as charismatic. And some of the survivors told me that wasn't it. These were very sincerely religious people who believed that the Bible is God's word. But the Bible is confusing. The Bible carries conflicting stories. What Koresh was able to do in a way that I've heard described again and again as a singular mesmerizing thing, if you believe that the Bible is meant to bring meaning to your life, was to weave the stories from the Old Testament to the New to make that whole book make sense in a new way that gives particular meaning to the lives of his followers. And I, life is confusing and scary. And I think we are all looking for meaning and to be told that you are part of the last generation. They did believe that the apocalypse was right around the corner, that you are going to play a part in God's plan and to make it clear and compelling to his followers. That's what he did day after day in a, in a way that I wonder, I wish I could have heard it. I have heard him speak. And as you mentioned, it's it's hard to understand if you don't come from yeah. the Seventh-day Adventist tradition. But you do get a sense of what a good storyteller he was mm -hmm. and how he wound his followers up and made them want to be back tomorrow, to look forward to tomorrow, because our lives, we're playing a part in a great drama. Yeah. I think for me, one of the things that's really tough to parse with with what happened in Waco is sort of, you know, who's to blame? Who did what wrong? Were people provoked? And if so, are they absolved of the crimes that they mm. may have committed, et cetera? When you went in to write this book, kind of where did you start? And did that change as you researched? Did, you, did your opinions change about what had happened? Did you feel like some people maybe got off the hook who shouldn't have, or some people should have taken on more blame, or, or just that you felt more sympathy towards certain groups of people versus others? I'm just curious, like, you know, what, what you knew before you started writing it versus all the research that you've done, what's changed? Right. Well, to start, what changed the most was that I gained more sympathy for everybody on mm. both sides. Going mm -hmm. in, I was under the impression that after a long standoff, uh, that the FBI had rolled in and attacked the Branch Davidians right. to a degree that that's, that is true. I was fascinated to, by the mystery of how the fire began. Uh, I learned a great deal about that. And, and uh, that was one of the mysteries behind what happened at Waco that appealed very much to me. But the most the thing that changed the most, I would say, is that I came to understand the plight of the ATF agents who were following orders, who, who knew that uh, they, Davidians had been tipped off that mm -hmm. day. It's, it's been said they went in having no idea. In fact, they had been told, yes, they know we're coming to go in in any case. Uh, they were shocked to find themselves in the heaviest firefight that the ATF had encountered. The FBI comes in then immediately after that and takes over the long siege. I had a great deal of, uh, of uh, sympathy for the plight of Gary Nesner, who was the uh, FBI's lead negotiator in the first part mm. of the siege, who was doing what he could to get along, even if you have to humor David Koresh, who was a maddening character, especially <laughs> yeah. if you're on the phone listening to him go on and on about his Bible prophecies 
and the guitar nebula that's moving toward the earth at the speed of light and is actually made up of angels. You got to listen right. to that stuff for hours on end. And the patience of the FBI negotiators, I admired. But that patience ran out as the pressure mounted national TV every single night, making the FBI look foolish, making the, the Justice Department and the Clinton administration look foolish. The pressure by the hardliners became so great that Nesner is relieved. And then I believe that uh, Attorney, General Reno, Attorney General Reno was um, misled by an FBI that was so determined to go in that, uh, that they were going to have their way one way or the other. Yeah. Okay. So here's the thing I learned from your book that I had did not know at all going in. I was always under the impression that Waco, in addition to being, you know, or the Branch Davidians, in addition to being a religious group led by David Crash, was exclusively or almost exclusively white. Turns out that's not the case. Right. However, the legacy and the story and the people who hold up the Branch Davidians and what happened there, a lot of them are white supremacist groups. And so I'd love for you to talk, you, you know, you talk about it a little bit in the book, but it's the one thing that I'm like, I could read a whole book just on this little nugget of information. Because mm -hmm. you mentioned it's almost, I think, around 50% or close to 50% mm -hmm. people of color. Um, they're one of their like, lead lead guys the lawyer guy is a black guy mm -hmm. a black lawyer his Harvard family yes yeah his family sort of plays a prominent they're a prominent family in the community and i would just love to know what was actually going on with the branch davidians around race and then how come they became this white supremacist thing when Randy Weaver was right there, you know, yeah, like true. He, like a you could have just been like, yeah, like someone who was like, I'm a white supremacist. And like, you know, that's sort of kind of, you know, what my earlier question was is like, why not just go full Ruby Ridge mm. when they believe in all the things that you believe in? Whereas the Branch Davidians sort of believed in other things and it was different. And, you know, so sort of a complicated question, but go ahead. It's, it's such an important point. I, I do make the point uh, in the book that the Branch Davidians were quite racially diverse. And in one of his sermons to them, uh, Koresh would tell them, I hate black people. And then he would say, I hate white people. And he would say, I hate every color of people uh, who don't follow God's word. This, this is one right. of his tropes. <laughs> There were contingents from all over the world. And, and as you say, this is really one of the more racially diverse religious groups you will ever encounter. And it is true that some militias are, are motivated by the idea of white supremacy, and they try to ignore that aspect of who the Branch Davidians really were. These survivors have been confused a few times to be adopted by militias. Oh, you're, you're just like us. The, the current pastor... At, at the chapel that stands on the site of, of the fire, tells militia members who make pilgrimages there, oh, if David Koresh were here today, he'd be one of you. Uh, oh. Well, he wouldn't. At least he wouldn't share the, the uh, ideas behind white nationalism that motivates some of the militias. I think it's important to mention that that wasn't the point of Waco Rising, because my job, I felt, right. was to point out the links, to mention that the survivors are uncomfortable when they're embraced by people who said, you share our values. And, and their answer is, well, we share some of them, right. but not that one. 
I did speak with uh, a former FBI agent who was embedded with some very extremist militia groups. And he said he met hardly a single one of them who did not call Waco his or her awakening to, to the opposition to government that they feel called to do. But if they feel that the Branch Davidians were white supremacists at all, then they couldn't be more wrong. Yeah. I mean, it's just it was just really fascinating. Obviously, no, I'm not suggesting that you have to write that book, but there is a book there. So whoever's listening, please, please write this book for us. Kevin and I both want to read it. So you've written other books, like you mentioned, the Challenger book. Mm -hmm. I just finished your Kitty Genovese book. You've written books about all sorts of other things, like baseball-y things. Mm -hmm. But um, I'm curious, when you write about these disasters and these people and these like huge moments in the cultural consciousness, why are these stories important for you to tell? And what what do you feel like they have in common with each other? That's such an interesting question. Uh, I, I think the Kitty Genovese book is a good example um, of, it seems to me that fairly recent important moments in American history tend to be understood in a very limited fashion. And what's mm. fascinating about them is what really happened, the nuance, the fact that Kitty Genovese didn't die with 38 people looking out their windows and paying no attention to what was happening, that the Challenger mission was utterly misunderstood and was the result of a long chain of decisions, that what happened at Waco was not good guys and bad guys either way, that there was good and evil on both sides, and that the reasons behind Uh, The fact that the way that this American drama played out are every bit as important and fascinating as the the, what little most of us remember uh, about this this fiery incident 30 years ago. Yeah, I'm wondering if there's anything that is not in Waco Rising that you wish was in Waco Rising. Hmm. I dearly wish that I could have talked to some of the people who died there. certainly the four ATF agents who died on February 28th and someone like Wayne Martin, whom you mentioned, who was their lawyer, who chose to die for his faith, who chose to stay behind. His wife, Sheila Martin, who was a very important part of the book, had gone out to be with three of their children. Her husband and the rest of her family is still inside. He, like uh, David Thibodeau and Clive Doyle, who did escape through a burning wall, could see the outside, mm-hmm. and he chose to die for his faith. It's not a faith that I share, but I think it's it's impossible not to be moved and struck by the power of that faith. And I think that carries some explanatory power in terms of when people ask, what, what were those people all about? Why did it happen the way that it did? Right. Okay. So I want to circle back one more time to... Um, sort of the legacy of Waco, because Mm -hmm. another thing that I was really struck by in reading about these events, of course, I knew, you know, the Timothy McVeigh connection. I I did know the Alex Jones connection as well, um, that he was like a teenager who was, I think, as as they say, radicalized by this or whatever. I don't know. He's a monster. But anyways, um, there's another side of this sort of distrust of the government and the police. And that side, I think, you know, there's like this right, this right wing militia, you know, sometimes white supremacists, et cetera. But then on the other side, there are people who are victimized by the police and the government constantly. Um, mm-hmm. as I obviously, especially, especially thinking of black people, but a lot, you know, people who want to defund the police and abolish police and prison systems and those things. And I wonder 
if there is any, if you found any tie to to that through Waco, if there's any tie to the Waco legacy with people who are maybe more progressive or left leaning who saw what happened in Waco and felt like that justified some of their thinking. I think there's an important link in that that was the first major instance of the militarization of government, that law enforcement forces against Americans on American soil. We've since seen an enormous expansion of that, and and we've seen it in recent decades. Uh, I think there is now becoming a, a, a movement toward let's let's take away some of the military equipment from police departments. We've seen many, many police are utterly sincere public servants. There are some who are killers. And we need to uh, have policies that limit their destructive power, the, the ones who are killers. And I think demilitarizing American law enforcement is a very important uh, lesson from what happened in Waco. And also, the idea that that uh, military force should be used uh, reluctantly, I believe, against foreign opposition and never against Americans on American soil. Yeah, there's two big questions uh, that come up in the book, and um, I'm trying to get you know all three of you who've written about mm -hmm. the book on record on your opinions of what happened here. So okay. the first question is, who do you think shot? first on February 28th? Was it the ATF agents or was it the Branch Davidians? And then the second question is, do you think that the helicopters had real firepower going on or do you think that that's not true? And I know you address it in the book, but I'm trying mm -hmm. to get everyone on the pod to say it too. <laughs> sure. Um, as, as far as the helicopters go, uh, I do not think that they were military helicopters with with rifles as part of their armament. I think that the agents inside were definitely armed, uh, and and that's important to know. But these are not the Black Hawk helicopters right. that we see in movies firing down on the Davidians. I think it is impossible to know who shot first. If I were forced in Las Vegas to make a bet as to who shot first, I would bet without without great confidence, but a preponderance of the evidence that I've encountered uh, to say that the first shots may well have been by the ATF to shoot the dogs who were outside. Mm, interesting. The mere fact that after 30 years, we wonder which it was, I think shows how, how compelling a story yeah. this is. That particular aspect of it, I think we're still going to be wondering about in 30 more years. I, I agree. I think, it you know, it's definitely, yeah, definitely. So I, I talked to every, every author I talked to on the show, I asked them a few of the same exact questions. And this one for you is, how do you like to write? Where are you? How often? How many hours a day? Do you listen mm. to music? Do you uh, write in your home? Do you have an office? Are there snacks and beverages involved? <laughs> do you like candles? Set the scene for us. Definitely no candles, okay. uh, no music. I, I think I would find music terrifically distracting. I okay. sit on the couch uh, in front of my computer uh, every day. Uh, I wouldn't know what to do 
I'm, I'm not sure that it's 365 days a year, but it certainly averages more than 360 okay. because it would I would hate, <laughs> I wouldn't know what to do with, with myself uh, without having some work to do. It's not usually more than four or five hours in a day, which leaves lots of time for bike riding when the weather is nice and other things uh, like that. I like very much to have more than one thing going at a time. It's great to have a book and to have some journalism to do. So you can work hard on your book and then blink and, and take on another project for a little while. The books are always the most important. And in thinking about them, I think, because a book is a big job and it takes a good deal of time. The biggest motivator, it seems to me, is always trying to level with the reader. Mm. You never, you never want to do anything but try to, as hard as you can, to express what you've learned as effectively as you can to the reader. And and the other motivator is to uh, uh, try to do justice to the people that you're writing about. Snacks and beverages. Uh, snacks and beverages. Uh, coffee. An enormous amount of coffee <laughs> to the point that uh, it's by by the afternoon it's half coffee and half water got it because a person can only tolerate so much coffee no <laughs> snacks no snacks okay you know I'm, I'm a snack gal myself but I'll allow it um what's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try hmm I'm drawing a blank are you a good speller yes yes okay. I'm a spelling like bee person from uh oh uh, from way back. And uh, and I think it's interesting that I think that spelling, a lot of spelling has to do with whether you have a visual memory or an auditory mm -hmm. memory. I have a visual memory. So the words that you encounter, then you can see them afterward and just, oh, okay. There are definitely many, many words that I have to go <laughs> and look up to see how to spell them correctly. I'm just not thinking of them right now. Okay. That's fair. Um, for people who love Waco Rising, what are some other books that you might recommend to them that are maybe in conversation with this story or told similarly or, you know, whatever that means to you? Rather than a book, as much as I, I love books, A, everyone should go to his or her or their uh, independent bookstore and support independent bookstores as yes. much as possible. Um, I think for people who are reading Waco Rising, it would be awfully interesting to see the uh, dramatized docu-series mm -hmm. uh, that, that ran on Paramount Plus a few years ago, that much of it was fascinating. A lot of it was uh, fictionalized, but the ways that it was fictionalized are interesting. Mm. And I think to compare a book to another form of storytelling in that way is is uh, awfully educational. As far as a book, I, I often find myself uh, rereading John le Carre uh, and just to try to uh, write better. So hoping it will osmose a little bit. I always <laughs> go back and read Roth. I read Hilary Mantel again, hoping that it that it uh, rubs off. Yeah. Uh, to some degree. Uh, but there are so many terrific writers uh, working. Uh, and I think there's a lot of uh, competition for readers' attention. So I prize everybody who takes the time to take a look at one of my books. Here's my last question for you. If you could have one person, dead or alive, read Waco Rising, who would you want it to be? Dead or alive, I think would probably have more uh, good effects uh, if it were uh, someone who was alive. Joe Biden. Hmm. I love this. All right. Thank you. This has been a conversation with Kevin Cook, author of Waco Rising, which is out now in the world. Kevin, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Tracy. It's one of the best conversations about a book that I have had. Oh, 
yay. <laughs> Everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Jeff Gwynn, Stephen Talty, and Kevin Cook for joining the show. And thank you to Rebecca Rosenberg, Maureen Cole, and Carolyn O'Keefe for helping to make these conversations possible. Don't forget to listen next week on April 26th to our book club discussion of Ross Gay's poetry collection, Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude. We will be discussing the book with Clint Smith. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 